The Pre-Med Years is part of the MedEd Media Network at mededmedia.com. The Pre-Med Years, session number 188. Hello and welcome to the two-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Several months ago, I put out a question in our Facebook Hangout group, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash group, and I asked you what you're struggling with on your pre-med path, and I was surprised by the answers. One of the most common questions that came back was that you are struggling with studying and studying tips and time management, a lot of those things that we don't really talk about here on the podcast until today. Today's guest is an amazing person who used to teach chemistry to pre-med students and to other chemistry students, and now goes around the country to schools and teaches students and teaches teachers on how to better study. And we're going to dig in to all of that with Dr. Sandra McGuire. So let's go ahead and say hello to her. Dr. McGuire, thanks for joining me here at the Pre-Med Years. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you start by explaining what it was that you used to do to bring you to what you're doing right now? I was a professor of chemistry, but I was also director of the Center for Academic Success, the Learning Center. And so in that role, I taught students effective learning strategies, metacognitive learning strategies. And since I was a chemistry professor, I worked with a lot of chemistry students, helping students understand how to study more efficiently and more effectively. And now I go around to other campuses and talk with faculty and students about how to do exactly that. I'm sure being a chemistry professor, you dealt with your fair share of pre-med students as well. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. I taught at Cornell University for a number of years before coming back down to LSU, Louisiana State University, and I found that the challenges were pretty much the same at all of the institutions at which I've I've taught chemistry. Now, I want to define what metacognition is before we dig into a little bit more. Great question. Metacognition is a term that was coined by cognitive psychologists back in 1979, Flavel. And simply put, it's your ability to think about your own thinking. The way I explain it to students is it's as if you have a big brain outside your brain looking at what your brain is doing. <laughs> and, it's, and it's asking your brain questions and it's saying, does she really understand this information or did she just memorize it last night because there's a test coming up? It's, does she realize if she's got a paper that's due in a couple of weeks, she really needs to start thinking about it and planning for it or is she just planning to whip it out the night before? So you're really thinking about your thinking. It allows you to be a problem solver and not think that you need someone else to solve all your problems or answer your questions. And it's your ability to not just monitor your mental processing, but to control it so that if you know that you have a big organic chemistry test coming up and you've decided that you're going to spend Saturday night studying, if some friends come by and say, oh, 
ah, let's go out. Then your metacognitive brain says, no, we've already scheduled what (laughs) we're going to do Saturday night. And if you decide that it's a party you absolutely can't miss, then your metacognitive brain says, well, okay, you can go, but we got to reschedule this time that we were going to spend Saturday night. I can, I'm just picturing your little metacognitive brain sitting on your shoulder, like the little angel and devil um, talking to you. Yes, absolutely. And it it, uh, really allows you to be more in touch with your resources. Uh, A quick example I'll give you. Many students and professionals have a problem with procrastination, for example. In fact, I am also having that problem. Um, I don't don't even know what that word is. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I can believe it with everything that you do. Um, But if you're not using your metacognitive brain, then you say, oh, I'm a procrastinator. I put things off. I wish I didn't procrastinate. But the metacognitive brain says, look, that's a problem. We need to solve that problem. And so you say, well, what am I supposed to do? And the metacognitive brain says, well, what do you do now when you want to find out about something you don't know anything about? And what do most of us do when we're trying to find out something about something we don't know about? We Google it. Exactly. Google it. And so your metacognitive brain says, well, just Google it. And so if you Google how to avoid procrastination, you're going to be brought to all kinds of websites that have wonderful strategies about how to tackle procrastination. Uh, One of the most effective being just use your cell phone timer because what's the most difficult thing, part of doing something that you really don't want to do? Oh, I don't know. Getting started. Yeah. Yeah, just getting started. And so uh, one of the strategies that I found online was you just set your cell phone timer, set it for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, Mm -hmm. and tell yourself, when I hit start, I'm going to start this task, and I'm not going to stop until the timer goes off. And you will feel yourself wanting to jump up and do something else, but you say, no, I'm going to do it until the timer goes off, and you will get so much more done in that 30 minutes than you ever imagined you would. And then once you've gotten it started, then it's easier to continue with the task. Yeah, that's the the Pomodoro technique. Exactly. Exactly. The timing of that. Yeah. And and metacognition also involves your ability to know what you know and what you don't know. So you don't show up at a test, a biochemistry test, thinking, oh, yeah, I've studied. I know all this stuff. And then when you sit down, you see, oh, I don't know this. I don't know that. And so one of the strategies there is just to pretend that you're teaching the information. Because if you go through pretending that you're teaching the information, your brain is going to get stuck at those points where you don't totally understand the concept and then you know to go and look it up and review it so that by the time you get to the test, you will have gone through everything. But without that, your, your brain will kind of convince you that you totally understand things that you don't. And if you haven't pretended that you're teaching it, then you're not going to find out that you don't totally understand it until you get to the test. Wow. It's uh. It's very interesting to just the just the the simple concept of of just picturing me sitting outside of myself and dictating what I'm doing. I, I'm sure there's a fine line between metacognition and a DSM diagnosis in there. <laughs> um, but, now I'm not familiar with DSM. What is DSM? Oh, that's the psychiatry diagnoses. Oh, okay. Um, Yes. What? Well, I, how, how did you get into this? 
Great question. I was teaching at Cornell University back in 1970. I was a teaching assistant. And as a teaching assistant, we had to sit in on all of the lectures because we had to have a consistent message when we did our recitation sections. And so I remembered sitting in class thinking, hmm, if I didn't already understand this information, there's no way I would learn it from the lecture. And the lecturer was a brilliant lecturer. He was doing a great job. It's just that there was so much information between the lines. There was so much background information that students really needed to understand so that they could understand what he was talking about. And I knew students didn't know that. And so I started just voluntarily holding a weekly review session for students, anyone who wanted to come, where I explained the between the lines information, the background information that they needed to know. And the students did wonderfully in the course. And uh, ever since then, I've been dually involved with teaching chemistry, but also with teaching students how to learn chemistry. Uh, I'll give you another quick strategy. Uh, So many students don't do well in especially general chemistry and organic chemistry also because of the way they do their homework. Typically, and I'll ask you, Ryan, if this ever happened to you, think back to (laughs) when you were doing homework. Did you ever look at a homework problem and then flip back in the chapter to find an example of the problem that you had to work? That's how you get through homework, isn't it? (laughs) That was the number one reason I found that my students at Cornell, who had the ability to make A's in the courses, were making C's, D's, and even F's. And the reason is this. When you use the example to work the problem, are you working the problem? Is your brain working the problem? No. No, the book is working the problem. And so then, but we're all really bright people. And I got a you know, confession time. I did the same thing because nobody <laughs> told me that there was another way to do it. Uh, but because we're very bright, when we look at the way the example works it, we think, oh, yeah, I understand that. Uh, I got that. But then when we get to the test, if they change anything around at all, what happens? Yeah, then then your your process is messed up because you've only learned it one way. Exactly. And so there is a great way to prevent that. And the way to prevent it is to, before you look at the first problem, study the information that the problems are going to be on. Uh, for example, if you're looking at bimolecular versus unimolecular nucleophilic substitution. And so you study that information as if it's going to be on a test or a quiz the next day. And so whether you're using your textbook or your notes, you're going to come across examples after they explain the process. And so I didn't know this, but when I ask students, what do you do now if you're using your textbook or your notes? What do you do when you get to an example? What do you think most students tell me? They probably just skip over it. Yes, they skip it. Now, Ryan, I have to tell you, that was a (laughs) shock to me because I never skipped the examples. I would would look at what the author said. But I tell students that you've got to commit to yourself that you will never skip another example because the examples are your brain's best resource for convincing itself that it can work these problems, it can answer these questions. It doesn't need the author. And so you work the problem yourself. And even if you get to a point where you're not sure exactly exactly what to do next. You just power your way through it until you get to an answer. And then when you've gotten to an answer, now just compare your answer with the answer in the book. 
if you got the same answer, then you can look at what the author did. But if you didn't get the same answer, don't look yet. Try to figure out where your mistake was. And I asked students at this point, I said, now at this point in the process, do you think making a mistake is good or bad? And what do you think? They think it's bad because as type A students, we all think mistakes are bad. But I I now know that mistakes are good. Yes. Believe it or not, Ryan, whenever I ask students this question, students always say good. Good. Whenever I ask faculty, what do you think students say? Faculty always say exactly as you said, students say bad. But students always say good. Now, they haven't really thought about it before because nobody's put it to them this way. But they say good. And then my response is absolutely. I said, now, but don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's bad if you don't make a mistake at this point. It's great if you don't make a mistake at this point. But why is it good if you make a mistake at this point? And what do you think they tell me? They can learn. Absolutely. That's the number one answer. They say, you learn from your mistakes. Sometimes they say, well, now you know where your brain has a tendency to go wrong. Or sometimes they'll say, well, you're not going to make the same mistake twice. And so they recognize that it's it's good. And um, so then it's it's if you do the examples that way, work out all the mistakes, then when you get to the homework problems, pretend it's a test or a quiz and speed up a little bit uh, like you'd have to do on a test or a quiz. And Ryan, I have tons of students who were making 60s and 70s before and changing that one thing, their scores go into the 80s, 90s, or even 100 because now they're learning the information and they're working the problems themselves and mastering the information. Wow, that's incredible. Now, Dr. McGuire, what, and we talked a lot about some, some mistakes that students are making. Would you say that, that how they're reading the questions and doing that is the biggest mistakes that students are making? Or is there some other mistake that you see as a, a very common mistake? Yeah, I think that the biggest mistake goes back to really not understanding, fundamentally understanding the information. Assuming that they have mastered information that they've read and reread or highlighted, but not really having a firm grasp on the concepts. And that's where I think teaching is so important. But you mentioned reading, and you mentioned reading the question, but I'll give you another reading strategy because uh, so often students are not using the textbook, they're not reading the textbook, and that is extremely important. But many students don't really know how to read effectively for comprehension and retention. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just give you a very quick reading strategy that I recommend that all students start using. And the process is to read the way your brain likes to operate. And we know from cognitive science that if the brain is going to learn something new, if it has a big picture, an overview, and then it starts to get individual details to fill in that big picture, it's much more efficient than if it just starts out reading, getting individual details, trying to create its own big picture. So before you start to read, you got to give your brain an overview. Look at the boldface print, the italicized words, any charts or graphs. So for example, if I were reading a chapter on assets and bases, I would see strong acid, weak acid, strong base, weak base, and italics. And so my brain already knows that's what I'm going to be reading about. And then the next thing is come up with questions that you want the reading to answer for you. And so I might say, well, I wonder what this thing is going to say is the difference between strong acids and weak acids. So I'm tuning my brain to 
look for that information and understand it. And then the next step is when you start to read, just read the first paragraph. Then after you've done that, stop, put that in your own words. And then read the second paragraph, stop, put that in your own words, and then try to fill, uh, try to go back and tie it to what was in the first paragraph and read the third paragraph the same way. Now, whenever students do this, I they'll come back and they'll say, wow, Dr. McGuire, this is really, really helpful. And I will ask them, does it take you longer to do your reading this way? And to a person around, they'll say, well, no, actually... I finish the reading sooner doing it this way. And the reason is because they're more focused. They're not having to read and reread and reread because their mind is wandering. And it's a great reading strategy that I strongly recommend students do. Wow, that sounds awesome. It sounds very familiar. I took a speed reading class a long time ago, and, and some of those strategies are very similar, which is interesting. Yes. And the thing is, Ryan, this is not rocket science by (laughs) any stretch of the imagination. And the interesting thing is that the successful students, most students who are very successful in undergrad school and medical school and law school, they are using these strategies. But the students who are not doing well don't know this is what the students who are doing well do. And so this is what I do. And it's it's so much fun. Um, I In fact, I just talked with a student yesterday uh, who I taught freshman year. He's in medical school now. And he told me, I, I saw him Saturday, and he said, Dr. McGuire, I'm using all those strategies. And the one he said that uh, really works for him, one of the strategies is in order to get the most out of lecture, you want to do a quick preview of what's going to be talked about in lecture. Do that overview. And then when you get to lecture, your mind is going to be tuned into the information, come up with questions even that you want the lecture to answer for you. And then as soon after class as possible, review what just happened in lecture. Because when you hear something for the first time, it goes into short-term memory. And unless you do something to move it into long-term memory, it's not going to be available. So if you review right after lecture, in fact, it has the same impact as if you've seen a movie more than one time. Have you ever seen a movie, any movie, more than once? I have a a two-year-old, so I've seen Frozen a handful of times. (laughs) Got you. And did you notice the second time you see it, you see things that you didn't know were there the first time. Definitely. The third time, you see more things. And so one of the strategies I tell students is preview before lecture and then go to lecture and be present in lecture. And you can do that if you've done your previewing. Uh, Don't be on Facebook. You know, don't uh, shop on the the web or anything. Uh, Just be very focused on lecture. Then as soon as lecture is over, go and review that information so your mind is going to see even more things than it saw in lecture. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, you talked a little bit about uh, chemistry problems and reading a textbook and, and reading through the book and coming to example problems and working through the problems. How does how does this learning style work for non-math-based or non-science-based subjects? That's a great question. Yeah, for those, the analogy for the way people do problems is in those other courses, it's the way they answer questions. So, for example, if you're taking an ethics course and it's using a textbook and there's some uh, some questions that the instructor comes up with that you have to turn in for homework, typically people will read the question and then they'll find that part of the chapter that is related to specifically that question 
and they will read that and answer the question. And so they're, you know, doing great on the homework. But in fact, the faculty member wants them to synthesize the information to put it all together. And so for courses that are not problem-based, my strong suggestion is to read everything using the reading strategy that we just talked about, but also try to identify what are those overarching concepts? How do those concepts fit together so that you have a much deeper understanding of the conceptual foundation for the course? Okay. Very interesting. Now, this is obviously something you've been teaching for a long time, and you have data that actually backs up what you've been talking about from from your own research and, and looking at students' performances. Can you dig in just a little bit on, on what you've found actually teaching this to students and, and what happens to them when they utilize this information? Yes, great question. And actually, Ryan, I have not been teaching it for a really long time. I started helping students in chemistry at Cornell. I was giving these review sessions, but I wasn't really teaching them how to learn. I was reviewing the information and making sure they understood things. But it wasn't until about 15 years ago when I got to LSU that I started delving into the cognitive science aspect of teaching people how to learn. And uh, I got to tell you, when I first started doing this, I really didn't think it would make Make a huge difference. Um, but I started teaching students how to read differently, how to do problems. And uh, there were students, I had an organic chemistry student who made a 28 on the first test, 30 on the second test. And then after hearing this information, in the 80s on the third test and in the 90s on the fourth test, I, there was a student and I, at the Learning Center at LSU, the Center for Academic Success, they were doing some of these strategies, but I kind of refined it after I got there. Uh, But there was another learning strategist who doesn't know chemistry, but she just taught the basic learning strategies. And there was a student who'd made a 42 on his first general chemistry test, and he made hundreds on everything after that. Uh, I had an analytical chemistry student who had made not higher than 65 on any of the exams throughout the semester. And I talked with him two days before the final exam, and he made 107 on the final exam. Wow. So it is amazing. And, and I think, Ryan, one of the things that this does is when students aren't doing well, especially very good students, students who have been straight-A students in high school who really never had to study, when they get to college and they flunk that first chemistry test, they don't know what to do differently. And so when I talk with them about these strategies, then they immediately see, ah, I can do this differently. And so it empowers them. It motivates them to do something differently. And then when they get success, then there's no more powerful motivator than success. And so the confidence, that's the other thing that having strategies improves. Now you know a way to master the information, so your confidence soars, and if you're yeah, it's just a, a beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship when all these factors come together to improve student learning very dramatically and very quickly. One of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast, or I talk a lot about on this podcast, is course correction. And I talk to a lot of students, they say, I, I, I did poorly, I got a C in chemistry, a C in organic chemistry, should I retake it? And I always start off with, you need to figure out why you got a C in the class before you mm-hmm. move forward. And it sounds like using these techniques, using this information, they can hopefully 
course correct and improve and figure out why they're doing so poorly. Absolutely. And that's a great point because I, I talk with a lot of students, many of whom are pre-med, and um, I always finish talks with what I call the ABCs of success. A is attitude. It's your attitude, not your aptitude that will determine your altitude, how far you can go. And then B is for uh, behavior. It's your behavior that's going to determine how well you do. Just do it. If you know what to do and you don't do it, then you're not going to be successful. But then the C is for commitment. And I always say that it's not over until it's over. And only you determine when it's over. Change courses when you need to. But uh, I say if there, if every organic chemistry student who was told by an organic chemistry professor, well, you're never going to be a doctor because <laughs> <laughs> you, you, know, you, you only made C's on my first two tests. If they hadn't stopped and said, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to change course. We'd have a lot fewer doctors in the world. But I think the other component that what I'm talking about now adds on to it is now you know what to look at for what you were doing wrong. Because before I learned this, you know, I would tell students, well, you need to change. You need to focus on concepts. You can't just memorize information. But I didn't realize that if I didn't give them something very specific that they could do to change, they didn't know how not to memorize and how to focus on concepts. And that's what I find the beauty in this information is it gives students very specific strategies that they can implement. And then they see what the difference is between what they were doing before and what they're doing now. Yeah. Can we dig in a little bit between what you call study mode and learn mode? Yes, absolutely. So when I speak with students, I like to, basically what I'm trying to do is effect a paradigm shift in students. So I want them to change from what they're doing that is making them unsuccessful into something that will make them successful. And I want them to do an about face immediately. And so the way I do that is to ask two reflection questions. And so I will ask, what's the difference? How would you describe the difference between studying and learning? And nobody's ever asked them that before, but they really think they get into it. And the most common answer I get from students is they'll say, ah, studying is just memorizing information for a test or a quiz. But learning is when I understand the information, when I can apply it, when I can analyze it. Uh, sometimes they'll say, ah, studying is short-term, learning is long-term. Uh, they'll say, studying is tedious, learning is fun. And so I said, you know, absolutely. So if we take that to be the difference between studying and learning up to this point no then they'll say you know learning is i've really mastered the information in fact one young lady actually told me she said studying is what i do the night before the test to make an a but <laughs> learning is what i do if i know i have to use that information later and so i said absolutely so if we take that as the difference up to this point in time would you say you have been more often in study mode or in learn mode and 99% of students say they've been in study mode. And so I said, absolutely. So I, now I can teach you how to be in learn mode. And that's when I teach them the problem-solving strategy. I teach them the reading strategy. We talk about metacognition. 
And then the other question I ask is, I said, I'm going to give you two tasks and I want to know if you would work harder for one of these than the other. And the first task is, I say, two weeks from now, we're going to have the second test in this course and you have to make an A on that test because you didn't do so well on the first test. So you know how hard you would work for that. The second uh, scenario is, I say, Two weeks from now, we're going to have the next test in this course. And because the class didn't do so well on the first test, I've decided I'm going to give a review session for this test that's coming up. And I've decided that you are going to teach that review session. I'm going to have you come up to the front of the class. You're going to explain all the concepts, paying more attention to the more difficult concepts to make sure everybody is prepared for the test the next day, would you work harder for one of those tasks than the other? And if so, which one? Mm -hmm. And would you work harder for one than the other? Of and course. if so, which one? Oh, to, to teach in front of a class. Absolutely. And that's what most of the students say, 90% of the students say. Now, some of the ones that say, I'd work harder if I had to make an A on the test because they say, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about my grade. I need to make an A. But it doesn't take long for the other folks when I ask them, well, why would you uh, work harder if you had to teach it? They'll say, well, I have to really know it if I have to teach it. Or they'll say, I want to make sure that I can explain it in more than one way to make sure that everybody understands since everybody's grade is dependent upon me. Sometimes they say, I don't want to look stupid <laughs> in front of the <laughs> class. So they say, so I'm anticipating questions that will come from the class. So I want to make sure I can answer those questions. And so they realize that they're going to delve deeper into it if they pretend that they're teaching it. Um, that, in fact, uh, just last week, there was a young man, he had to take a licensure exam. And I talked to him about teaching the material. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Baby Groot. Did you see Guardians of the Galaxy? I have. The Baby Groot's a little tree. Exactly, yes. So he started teaching the information to baby Groot. And so he emailed me. He passed the, the licensure test with a much higher score even than he needed to. And he said, and I'm sure that if baby Groot had to take the test, he would have passed it too. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I mean by the difference between being in, in study mode versus learn mode. Study mode is you're just focusing on what do I need to do to make an A on the test? And you can memorize information, not understand anything, do a brain dump the next day on the test, get your little A. But if they test you on that material three weeks from now, you're probably not going to do very well. But if you're learning the information, you're going to do well on the test. And three weeks from now, you're still going to know that information because you didn't just memorize it for the test. Interesting. That's awesome. And, and it's it seems like common sense because we always say that one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it. And so it just, it makes sense. It does. But I think the big uh, problem is that students don't allocate enough time yeah. to learn. And uh, when we talked about problem solving earlier, you said, well, yeah, doesn't, isn't that the way everybody gets through homework? Well, yes. If most people start the homework, when do most people start their homework? The day before it's due. Exactly. <laughs> and when you start it the day before it's due, what is your major goal at that point? Finish it. 
Exactly. And I tell students, and students tell me this to finish it. And I said, yes. And so that's what I call being in getter done mode. So (laughs) if you're in getter done mode, you're not going to be able to make yourself use the process that we just talked about because there's not going to be enough time. And so I think the same thing, it takes more time to pretend that you're teaching the information to make sure you understand all the concepts than it is to just sit down and try to memorize a bunch of stuff. And so that's why that, that's another really, really important strategy, uh, time management. You've got to allocate enough time for this. And we tell students that you should really count on spending about two hours out of class for every in our in-class that you spend. And now students know what to do with that two hours because without telling them how to spend that two hours, they're thinking, it doesn't take me two hours to read over one, you know, one set of lecture notes from one lecture. What am I going to do in two hours? But now when they understand what they're doing, they're doing the problems differently, they're pretending they're teaching it, then they will allocate the time, put in the effort, and the results are nothing short of miraculous. That's awesome. Now, you wrote a book on all of this. Where can students find the book and what's it called? Oh, thanks for asking. Uh, It is on Amazon. And the name of it is just Teach Students How to Learn. And I actually wrote the book for college faculty because most college faculty are in the same position that I was before I got to LSU. And I'd been teaching chemistry 30 years before I got to LSU. But I didn't know how to teach students how to read, just as we've talked about, or teach students exactly how to do the problems differently. And so these are strategies that I've learned over the years. And I found that most faculty were in the same position I was. And so I put this book together to teach faculty the strategies. But then I had students who read it and they said, students need to read this book. (laughs) And in fact, one of the reviews on Amazon says, every student ought to read this book. And uh, then it dawned on me, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense that if I'm teaching faculty the strategies to teach students, if students read the book and find out the strategies, then they can directly implement them. And so I've gotten very, very good feedback from students that it's been very helpful. That's great. What is, as we finish up here, what is one thing that you would tell a student that is taking their intro chemistry class or is struggling through organic chemistry? What do you tell them to to motivate them to keep going? Okay. The first thing that I do is I show them before and after scores. And and I have about 20 in the book. We call them the miracle portfolio. I co-wrote the book with our younger daughter. Uh, But the first thing I want them to understand is that their performance in the course to date has absolutely nothing to do with how smart they are. It has everything to do with their behaviors up to this point, what you call the course that they've been on. They, if they change their behaviors, they can change the, the result because so many students are pretty demoralized if they flunk the first test. And so I want them to get past thinking that that score has anything to do with their future prognosis because it doesn't. And then the second thing I want them to understand is that if they put in the time, they will see the results. And I also don't want them to 
get focused on what happened in the past. And I think a great example, I don't know if you watched, did you watch the game last night, the NBA? I watched the last couple minutes. Okay, yeah. So Cleveland was down, you know, uh, one game to, to three. Mm-hmm. And uh, they could have very easily felt that, well, you know, it's pretty much over now. And this is what I see with so many students. When they don't do well on the first few tests, then they kind of give up. But I want them to know, no, you don't have to ever give up. Change the strategies, you do this. And if you do very well on the final, there are many faculty members who say, if you ace my final exam, then I will drop the lowest score before. So it, it's not, it really is not over until it's over. And I want students to recognize that you can do this. You can absolutely do this. Have confidence in yourself, implement the strategies, and you will see that you will excel in this course. All right. I hope that was extremely beneficial for you. I know from everything that I was listening to, I wish I had this information back when I was a student. And even moving forward, even outside of school, I can utilize some of these same techniques to help me learn things better, learn things faster. So hopefully you listen to this, re-listen to this, and listen one more time. And hopefully it sinks in. Hopefully you utilize these techniques to help better your grades and better your ability to understand what you're doing wrong or what you're doing well in your classes so that as you move forward through your pre-med years and even through your medical student years that you take these and you prosper with this information. So thank you, Dr. McGuire, for joining us here and sharing all that information. Again, you can find her book, Teach Students How to Learn, over on Amazon, and I'll have a link to that in our show notes page, which you can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash 187. I want to remind you, every time you shop at Amazon, if you go through one of my links, I get a little uh, commission from Amazon. It doesn't cost you any more, and it helps support us here at the medical school headquarters. So if you want to buy her book, go through my link over at that website And I would greatly appreciate it. Or you can just go to Amazon yourself. Either way, as long as you're getting the book and learning from it, that's all that matters. I want to thank this week's podcast sponsor, Elite Medical Scribes. You can find out a lot more about Elite Medical Scribes over at medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS, where you can learn about careers available to you. For this week, I wanted to speak with a former scribe turned project manager. So I reached out and talked to Alyssa, and she told me about some of the best benefits for pre-med students as scribes. Biggest draw is definitely going to be the experience. The ability to watch a physician and see what they do on a daily basis. You get a really good glimpse of what kind of issues providers actually deal with on a regular basis and what their actual duties are. It's more than just the stuff that you see on TV. I think it gives people a really good glimpse of the field that they're going to go into and you learn immense amounts of information because you are responsible for documenting that medical decision making. You have to be able to think like a physician. You have to have the, you know, solid foundation of knowledge that a physician would use when making those medical decisions. Now, after listening to that, I don't know how you can argue that being a scribe isn't one of the best things that you can do on your journey to becoming a physician. Getting that experience is amazing. 
And I wish I would have had that before I started medical school, before I started my clinical years, having that exposure to how physicians work and how everything relates and just how all the operations move together. All of that information is amazing to have as you begin your journey in medical school and on your journey to being a physician. So go check them out, medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS will take you to the career availability in an area near you. If you don't see anything, there's an option to submit where you are, and hopefully when something opens up, they'll let you know. Again, that's Elite Medical Scribes at medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS. I hope you got a ton of great information out of the podcast today. If you would like to leave us a rating and review based on this information, you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes and leave a rating and review. One of the things that you can also do, I forgot to mention earlier, to find some more resources about learning and what you can do to help better your ability to learn is go to Ellis's LSU's website, which is at cas.lsu.edu, and that is the Center for Academic Success. And at that website, there are more resources to help better guide you in your ability to take tests and to learn better and hopefully let that information sink in so that you're a better student and ultimately a better physician. All right, that's it for today. I hope you got a ton of great information out of it. And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters and the Pre-Med Years Podcast.